Father, as a father carries his children across the wilderness, as you have done for the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy, when you carry your children on your shoulders and right through the wilderness, Father, may you carry us through. And Father, as you carry us through the wilderness, as we sit upon your shoulders, speak tenderly to us as the Father does to his children. And Father, as we pause, as we look to you, as we listen to you, Father, we pray that you will give us calm hearts, trusting hearts, hearts filled with faith to believe your promises, to trust the goodness of your word. So Father, as we hum, come to you this morning, we pray that you will calm our hearts, give us faith to trust your everlasting words. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. One of the places I dreamed of going is Egypt. If you were to go to Egypt, most of the sites that you will visit are somewhere around along the river Nile. This is because 90% of the civilizations of Egypt revolves around the river Nile. For thousands of years, the river Nile is the lifeline of Egypt. The Nile is the longest river on earth. It is about 6,650 kilometers long or 4,132 miles long. And it goes across 11 countries and it drains at least 3.3 million square kilometers or 1.3 million miles. And about and it's about 10% of the African continent. If you go to see the lower Nile in Egypt, your tour guide may tell you that the Nile floods often in the summer. Over the years, this has mystified the ancient Egyptians. Why? This is because it hardly rains in the summer in Egypt. And yet the river floods. Uh, and you need to also understand that the river now passes through the Sahara Desert, which is about uh, for 300 kilometers or 186 miles. This is a very long stretch. Moreover, the Sahara Desert is the hottest and the driest desert on earth. So how could the river now not flood, not dry up after passing through the desert, the Sahara Desert, but still be able to flood <laughs> uh, in ancient Egypt in the summer? So many of the ancient Egyptians believed that the river Nile is a god by itself because this is a miracle in the making. And not only did the Nile not dry up as it passes through the Sahara Desert, it carries along with it, as it passes through the Sahara Desert, precious soil that is black in color, that they call black mud. If you talk to any Egyptian, he or she will tell you that this black mud is more precious than gold. This black mud is what gives fertility for thousands of years to the Egyptians. The economy of Egypt flourished because of the black mud. And precisely because of the richness of the black mud the river brings, that the river brings with it, the bank is often teemed with lots of animals, lots of wildlife, and also lots of uh, uh, vegetation that gives uh, economic wealth to the Egyptians, like banana trees, bamboos, coffee shrubs, all thrive along the river now. And, uh, 
and and by the swamps of the river now by the side there is also an aquatic plant called the papyrus which egyptians have used for many years as paper and thanks to the papyrus our biblical books are mostly written on them so the river now was not only beneficial to the economy of egypt but it was also beneficial to the Egyptians, especially ancient Egyptians, spiritually. Ancient Egyptians believed that when a person dies, he or she rides along a boat along the river Nile into Duat, which is the underworld. Every night, the sun god Ra'a also takes this boat ride along the river Nile into the underworld to attack the monsters of the underworld and every morning he comes back triumphant after defeating uh, the underworld and, and, and when he comes back along the river now that's when the sun rises again. So to many of the ancient Egyptians, the river now is the window into the underworld. It's also where you see and where you appreciate the sun god and where you worship. So it's not just the means of economic prosperity, but it's also the passage to the gods. It's a world we dreamed of, don't we? A world where economy is stable because you have the now that brings in your constant source of income. It's a world we dream of because we know where our God is. The ancient Egyptians said it easy. They know that if they want to find Ra'a, they just have to go to the river now. They just have to pray to the river now, which is a god by itself. They know how God functions because they know how the river functions. It's a world where we love to be in because we are in control. There's predictability. There is routine. We know and we predict the outcome. We can be rest assured of what we can expect for tomorrow it's a safe world but God doesn't want us to live in such a world and God has never created our world to be safe to be economically safe to be predictable how to predict where and how he works that's not the type of world that God has given to us yet for 430 years Israel had lived in Egypt in this kind of life but now God, in the book of Deuteronomy, has decided to bring Israel out of Egypt. A generation has passed. Israel is now at the verge of entering their own promised land. They've never lived in a land of their own before. They've heard about how mom and dad have talked about life in Egypt. They knew the life that they had, which was a life in control, where there is predictability, there is routine, there is economic stability. There is spiritual uh, predictability too, because they know how their gods work. But here God is speaking in Deuteronomy chapter 11. And God is trying to introduce them to a new land that God is bringing them into. A land that is very different from the Egyptians, from Egypt. In the book of Deuteronomy, God speaks to his people not as a king or a judge. In fact, the persona that God takes in the book of Deuteronomy is that of a father. The book of Deuteronomy is one of the most tender books in the Old Testament. Um, here you will find a father, God himself, tenderly speaking to his children. 
The book itself is a parenting manual addressed by God the Father to His Son and supposed to be passed from fathers to sons from generation to generation. So you want a, a parenting manual, read the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, God is presented as a doting father. For instance, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 31, that as a father carries his son, that's how the Israelites were carried during the wilderness. I often visualize this verse as a son sitting on the shoulders of his father. As the father carries the son into the wilderness, the son doesn't have, even have to walk. He just has to sit on the shoulders of the father as the father carries him across the wilderness. It's a beautiful, a tender picture of who God is. And here in Deuteronomy chapter 11, on this graduation day, as we pause to remember our graduates in this very momentous occasion, we want to look at Deuteronomy chapter 11. Here God is introducing the Israelites to the promised land. As a tender father would, what would be the promised land like? In a very short sentence, the promised land is not like Egypt in two ways. And this is what God is trying to say to us. The promised land is not like Egypt in two ways. Number one, it's a land that's not predictable and it's not land that is easy. It's not predictable and easy. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 11 verses 8 to 10. Observe therefore all the commands I'm giving you today so that you may have the strength to go in and take over the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. And so that you may live long in the land, the Lord swore to your ancestors to give them, to give to them and their descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey. The land you are entering, verse 10, to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot as in the vegetable garden. God here tells his people that the land that they are entering the promised land is a land overflowing with milk and honey. This is in verse 9. What does the idiom land overflowing with milk and honey mean? It means that the food that the people are going to receive in the land is not intrinsic to the land. You see in Egypt, food is intrinsic to the land. It's the river waters that bring the mud and the mud brings rich produces rich vegetation for the people. They don't have to do much laboring. But the land that God is bringing them into is different. The, the, land, the food is going to come from milk from animals that they have to rear themselves, not intrinsic to the land. They have to rear these animals themselves. The food is going to come in terms of honey from bees. These bees are not intrinsic to the land. They have to rear these bees. Life will be more challenging, it will be a lot of hard work, and there will be no predictable results. Then in verse 10 we read, The land you are entering over, are entering to take over, is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you planted and irrigated it by foot as in a vegetable garden. You see in Egypt, uh, they, they did irrigation by foot. What on earth does that mean? What is Moses talking about here? You see, in ancient Egypt, as well as in today, many of the agricultural fields are by the side of the river now. 
The fields are only separated by a mud hedge. And every time when a farmer wants to water his field, what he does is that he doesn't have to carry water all the way from the river now to water his fields. All he needs to do is stand by the mud hedge, which separates his field from the noun, and gives the hedge a kick. And once he gives the hedge a kick, a hole will be made and water will come in and flood his fields. Once he has enough water to flood his fields, all he needs to do is use his foot to kick back the mud. And the mud closes the hedge and doesn't have water anymore. So that's what God is saying here. In Egypt, you had it simple. All you need to do in terms of farming, in terms of watering your fields, is just give the mud hedge a kick and you have water coming in. But the land I'm giving you is different. How different? Look with me at verse 11. But the land you are crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. You will not get water so quickly. You will need to be dependent upon the rain. You will need to be at the mercy of God, praying to God for rain. Without rain, your crops will dry up and they will all die and you have no food on your table. What is God saying here? Following Him is not easy. There are many people who think and fantasize that if I become a pastor, if I serve God in a church, wouldn't life be perfect? Wouldn't I be living in the Eden of God? But God is saying, no, following me is not easy. And God's here saying to the Israelites, it's not going to be easy. The land that you're entering is going to be very radically different from the land in Egypt. You will not have water as easily. Food will not grow out of the soil for you. You have to rear them. You have to have your sheep and, and, and get milk out of them. You have to rear your bees so that you get your honey. You cannot kick and you have water uh, that waters your fields. No, no, no. Following me will not be easy. It will not be predictable. It will not be under your control. I will not be in control. On this graduation day, as you think about leaving in and going out into the world to serve God as pastors, as missionaries, as church workers, and, uh, um, and, and, and spreading the word of God, let me just warn you, it will not be easy. Every time when we serve God, there will always be difficulties. I know of a pastor who served in a very troubled church. There was a gentleman who kept criticizing the pastor's sermons behind the pastor's back. Instead of speaking to the pastor, he gathered people within the church, began to form clusters, and began to criticize the pastor's sermons, even to newcomers and new believers. When the elders knew about it, and, and, and knew that the church was being divided and caused into clusters and people were complaining because this gentleman was constantly criticizing the pastor. Instead of getting this gentleman together with the pastor to talk over issues that they had, that he had with the sermons, what did, what did the church elders do? 
instead of uh, working out with this man, getting to where he was and trying to make up a resolution and if not implement some areas of discipline, instead of doing all of that that's biblical, that is right, what the elders did is that they were afraid of losing this gentleman because he kept complaining. They instead made him the elder. The elder of the church. And he would say, how is that possible? Let me tell you, working in a church is not as blissful and not as easy as sometimes, and sometimes even more difficult than working in the secular world. Why? God has already told us, right from the start, following me will not be easy. Sometimes it may be tougher and more unreasonable than serving the secular world. So what's the good news? There is a second thing about this land that God wants to remind us. Number two, God cares and His eyes are on the land. If following God is hard, so why do we follow Him? Why do you spend all this time preparing for ministry and on this graduation day going out into the world to minister on behalf of His name? Why follow Him? Why serve Him? Why preach the gospel? If the land is more difficult than the land of Egypt, why do we need the promised land? Verse 12. It is a land the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it. The beginning of the year to its end. The word for cares, God cares for the land, is darast. The Hebrew word means, has a nuance of election. That God not only cares for this land, but God has specially chosen. Just as God elected Israel to be His own, God has carefully chosen this piece of land for his people. And the Bible also tells us that his eyes are on it. The tender care of God is not just, not just uh, uh, there, but God actually cares and God has specifically chosen this land for Israel. And the Bible tells us that God's eyes are on it, not just for a short moment of time, not just for a season, but it's from the beginning of the year to its end. To ancient people, this is, uh, this is very shocking because in the ancient world, especially among the Egyptians, they believed that the gods are only active during the harvest seasons. In the winter season, when everything is dormant, the gods are either traveling or they're asleep or doing something else. But here God's saying something very differently. God's saying, I'm not like the gods of the ancient world. I'm with you, my eyes are on the land from beginning of the year to its end. In the book of Deuteronomy, the word towns or cities uh, is often called Sha'ar. And if you look at what the word Sha'ar actually means, it actually means gates, G-A-T-E-S. And uh, the book of Deuteronomy seems to be calling cities or towns as gates at least 27 times. So some scholars are so baffled by it that whenever they read the word Sa'ar, they immediately translate it as towns or cities. So in many English versions, they just hide it. But why are towns or cities called gates in the book of Deuteronomy? You see, in the ancient world, the king is usually at the gate of a city. 
and he will minister justice there. The gate is the most important part of a city or a town. So towns are called gates in Deuteronomy to remind us that God is constantly at the gates. That whenever when people enter into God's towns, God is always there. The towns are, uh, that they are living in are not just random places, but they're chosen by God. That God is at the gates of these towns because these towns are His. The land is His. Yes, following Christ is not easy. As you go out to serve God amongst the churches in the mission field, you will encounter lots and lots of problems. Sometimes church people are even more unreasonable and more even more unloving and more uncaring and even more ungracious than the people in the world. But the good news is that God has placed His eyes on us. Each one of us is marked out by Him. Every city that God has chosen in Israel bears His name. He is there at the gate of every city, administering justice. He's always there protecting every city that He has chosen. How then do we respond? There is a phrase that repeats itself six times right through this chapter itself. It is the phrase, Observe therefore, all the commandments I am giving you. A phrase that's found in, um, in verse 8, for instance. All God wants us to do is that He may send us into towns and lands that are difficult. His eyes will be upon us. He cares for His people. All we need to do is to observe all the commands I am giving you. Why? It is only in obedience, obedience to God and to His Word, we begin to be in sync with what God is doing. We begin to see what God is doing. We begin to be reminded again that God's eyes are on His people, on His land, that He's with His land from beginning of the year until the end. It is through the Word. It is through observing how God works. It is in keeping with Him, even though we do not feel it, even though it may be difficult at times, but it is in persisting on His Word, deliberately keeping ourselves in line with His will, that we begin to enjoy and appreciate and have the faith to trust this God that leads us. Yes, as you go into this world on this graduation day, as you served amongst the churches, there will be unreasonable people. You are bound to have people who will stand up against you and you will scratch your head and say, are these people really Christians? God has predicted that. It will not be as easy as in Egypt. But His eyes are on us. All we need to do is to observe all that He has commanded us. Willie was a stutterer in his speech. The only job he could get was a shoe apprentice. The only woman that was willing to marry him was a woman with severe mental illness. But Willie kept reading Captain Cook's journals when he was young. And he was determined to be a missionary. 
But during the, ninth, in the, during the 1700s, the Protestants were not sending out missionaries. When Willie told his Baptist pastor that he wanted to be a missionary, his pastor just laughed at him. And when Willie pers persisted, the pastor shouted at him and said, Sit down, young man. If God wants the heathens to be saved, he will do it without us. Willie did not give up. Willie had a saying in his heart, Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. So the next 11 years, Willie spent his time studying the Bible in Greek, in Latin, in Dutch, and in French. Finally, he got the license to preach from the Baptist church. And then he set up the Baptist Mission Society to send out missionaries. In 1793, he finally got enough money to be a missionary and he sailed to India. His wife, who was mentally not well, sat at the dock and refused to leave. He had to bat her twice before she finally decided to leave with him. When they arrived in India, they were persecuted by the radical Muslims. They were prevented to go inland by the British East India Company. His wife finally went crazy and later died. His only child, the only child was a five-year-old that also died in India. Willie worked for seven years without seeing any fruit from his preaching of the gospel. And only after seven years, he saw just one single convert. He died in 1834 at the age of 73. But when he died, the Bible had already been translated into 34 languages. He had already built India's first college. He had taught the locals how to farm so that they get results. He has liberated many Indian women from the oppression they had been facing. The world knows Willie as William Carey. He was dubbed the father of the modern missions. And today, there are 25 million Christians in India, five times more than the number of Christians in England itself. Why? Because there was a man called Willie, despite his weaknesses, decided to observe how God works, decided to be faithful to God, who knew that even though being a missionary was difficult, was not Egypt, not easy as Egypt, was faced with troubles, that he would not even know where his food would be coming from, that he would beg God for rain, as the Israelites had to do. But he persisted because he believed that God had chosen him and that God was with him, that God's eyes was with him, not only for a season in life, but from the beginning to the end of the year. This was a man who chose to observe how God works and persisted. Why? Because he believed. That ultimately, it's not the land that matters, but the God we follow. And the God we follow is good. Give up your eye, me, for his eyes as you leave this place and serve the Lord. Look for his eyes because his eyes are all that matter.
Father, we come before you with our hearts rendered out before you. Father, we are so filled with I. I need to be in control. I need to know tomorrow. I need to walk on a routine. I need predictability. But when you send out into your kingdom, there is no predictability. We have to beg you for rain. We have to do the hard work. Why? Lord, because you want us to trust you. You want us to labor in faith. You want us to watch how you work. You want us to see your eyes that are upon us and upon your kingdom. So Father, we look to you at this time. We give up ourselves for your eyes. Your eyes are more important than the predictability of life. Your eyes are more important than what I eat tomorrow. Your eyes are more important than my future. Your eyes are upon this earth. Your eyes that loved us, that dotes us, are more important than myself. So Father, on this graduation day, as we pause with these students, on this momentous occasion, we want to again surrender our hearts to the Saviour. Jesus, we trust your eyes, that your eyes are upon your kingdom, that your eyes do not fail even when ours fail. So Father, walk us, even if we have to walk into the dimmest of all alleys, the darkest of all alleys, we trust your eyes, that your eyes are good, that you will lead us. And so Father, we give the reins back to you. Teach us to observe your ways, observe your commandments, so that we will follow after you and know where your eyes are. So Father, lead us. Eye for your eyes. In Jesus' name.